Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm your host, Marcus Gillis, and we are recording live from Banjo, Colorado. Population growing. Welcome to episode 10 of the Live from Banjo podcast. Please remember to follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you're on Apple, please leave a review if you enjoy the show. If you have critiques, feel free to DM me at Live from Banjo podcast on Instagram or email me directly at Marcus at LiveFromBanjo.com. I was conflicted about starting a Patreon account, but I'm hoping to be able to continue this show for the foreseeable future. And I'm also not willing to place ads on this show that I don't fully support. I know most of you would prefer that I don't have commercials at all, so here we are. If you are a listener of the show and would like to show some support or just a philanthropist and want to donate to a great cause, please visit my Live From Banjo podcast Patreon page. You can also follow the Patreon link at livefrombanjo.com or link in my bio at Live From Banjo Podcast on Instagram. The Patreon page will be live on March 9th. Also, I have created a mixtape for the show, but because I can't send you all cassettes as romantic as that would be, I have curated a playlist on Spotify that has a few songs for all of our recording musician guests thus far. Just go to Marcus Gillis and Spotify, Profiles, Public Playlist, and heart the Live From Banjo Season 1 guest mixtape. Each time a new musician is on the show, I will add some of my favorite songs and or a variety that shows off our guest versatility. Today, my guest is one of my favorite musicians and souls out there in the world, Langhorn Slim. Langhorn, originally born Sean Skolnick in Langhorn, Pennsylvania, is a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and wonderfully unique human. Slim grew up in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and had a beautiful relationship with his grandparents, which we discuss in the interview, which helped shape him as a person and the lessons learned continue to guide and help him maneuver in the somewhat crazy world we live in to this very day. Langhorn Slim has released seventh full-length studio albums beginning in 2005. His most recent release, Strawberry Mansion, named after the neighborhood where Slim's grandfathers, Jack and Sid, grew up, is a beautiful collection of songs that poured out of Sean from March to May of 2020. At that time, Sean was recovering from a relapse in addiction while simultaneously navigating the solitude of the pandemic. Sean and I discuss our battles with addiction, anxiety, and mental health at great length in this episode, but once again, the three line has a positive message about life's journey. Thank you so much for everyone that is listening. Please tell your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. And again, please follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please feel free to contact me anytime at livefrombanjo.com, email me at marcus at livefrombanjo.com, or DM and everybody. Please follow me on Instagram at livefrombanjopodcast. It really helps me spread the word. One little bit of pre-show house cleaning. Langhorn Slim's first full-length studio album is titled When the Sun's Gone Down. I think I miscall it when the sun goes down one, two, or four times in the show. And Slim was nice enough not to correct me, but I like to own up to my own mistakes as soon as possible. So ticking that box and I do apologize. Also, this show is filled with a bit of wildlife noise. Sean was at an undisclosed location in Tennessee and he moves from outdoors to indoors and back again. So there are some birds, dogs and other fun sounds from time to time. Also, please remember to stick around after the interview for Crystal and I's wrap up where we discuss Quantum Leap. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, not seven. That's an episode Easter egg. Disco Fries, Crystal's reading of There Are Men Too Gentle to Live Among Wolves, and I do a mediocre imitation of David Lynch. The wrap-up also includes some wildlife noise. 
My wonderful dog, Walter, decided to make an appearance again this week, so you might hear a subtle jingly collar or the not-too-distant gnawing of a bone from time to time. Don't worry, you're not losing your mind. I hope everyone is enjoying the show, and now please enjoy my open and vulnerable conversation with the enigmatic and beautiful soul, Mr. Langhorn Slim. but I wouldn't recommend it. So I guess we'll start, but hey, Sean. Hola. You know, uh, you're actually two days younger than my wife. Well, I'm not, I wasn't calling your wife old. I was just saying that. I, no, no, I'm, I'm six months older than her. Yeah, you're old. Yeah, I'm old. She's young. She's she young. looks like she's like, she looks like she's like 30. So you went up to the woods recently? To the woods? Didn't you go to the woods or something? Some little house in the woods? Oh, my friend Cracker Farm. He's got a place out in Ashland City. It's out in the woods. Yeah. And then I lost my wallet. I mean, I don't know that I lost my wallet there, but it's possible. You lost your wallet. Yeah. Didn't you lose your wallet some other time at like Woody Guthrie's house and then somebody returned to you? (laughs) You've read my files. Yes. Yes. That was the last time that I lost it. Lost it was at Woody Guthrie's, Woody Guthrie Shrine out there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I lost my wallet and I had no, I was traveling back from uh, California with my friend coming back to Nashville and I'd already lost my mind. Okay. And so that was, it was leading into coming back to Nashville and, and making some changes in my, in my life. And um, somewhere along the way, after we left Mr. Guthrie's, I realized that I couldn't find my wallet. And this dude named Billy Scribbles, who's a musician and a, a beautiful freak who I'd never met before. Mm-hmm. finds my wallet, gets in touch with some people. Yo, I found this guy Langhorn's wallet. He happens to be leaving Woody Guthrie's place and he's on a road trip mm-hmm. to Nashville. I think he lives in upstate New York, if I remember correctly, which is possible that I don't. And he is like three days behind us, something like that. Crazy. And winds up dropping my wallet off on my doorstep, which I was not uh, there to greet him because I was at that point weaning myself off of prescription medication and, and quite sick, feeling quite ill. Mm -hmm. And it was, I don't know how many days after that, Billy Scribbles doesn't know this. Hopefully someday we'll, we'll meet in person and talk. We keep in touch online a little bit. I went and, uh, and stayed with some people who take people's money to help them with drugs and alcohol problems. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. I know about those people. Yeah. God bless those people. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we could, finally connect. Cause I just thought, you know, two guys with terrible anxiety and battling addiction, you know, what could go wrong? You know, I actually, I don't actually struggle from any of those things. I just say that I do to sell records. That's my angle. You know what? That, that's, that's an interesting yeah. one. Okay. It's an interesting one. Yeah. But I find it really connects. And the, the next one, I feel like I was late right. to it. Maybe if I did like a sex tape, like a controversial sex tape, like 10 years ago, that might've shaken up the uh, Americana world, but I was, I was late to the game. So now I'm just like, well, I think lots of people got anxiety and depression and alcohol and drug problems. Yeah. That's not true. It's not, it's not Andy Kaufman esque but kind of, you just blew it. So now we know. Or did I? Maybe it's another level of it. Oh, yeah. I think it, it could be Kaufman-esque, but far more uh, grotesque. You know, just uh, pr- profiting off of um, mm. trying to connect yeah. art with other people's suffering. It would be a weird play. That would be, it would be fucking dark. It would be dark. 
it's even weird in putting a record out and making a bio and having gone to treatments and trying to learn new ways of dealing with anxiety and depression, staying away from drugs and alcohol to then discuss it day after day in an interview format, promoting a record, because there are times that even as sincere and honest as I can try to muster and my fear is that it ever would feel robotic for me or like I'm trying in my, in my weird joke, now circling around, I'm joking, deflecting with humor because it's actually a fear of mine that anything that I do, a painting that I paint or a, I mean, I'm not much a painter, so I'll just put it in the terms of what I actually do. An album that I put out to be some like sobriety album or this kind of album. You know, I, I, I don't really love that that idea. Mm-hmm. And I what I do like the idea of is just trying to be present for the source of one's own creativity to be as much of a vessel to be honest with the songs as possible. And in this case, inevitably it has led me to discussing these subject matters a lot. So it's been like, if you want to get really real about it, there's 12 step meetings almost every day. Mm-hmm. There's therapy once a week. Mm-hmm. And then I talk to, to men and women about my music, but also about these subject matters explicitly mental health, quote unquote, mental health um, and addiction. So it's been an interesting it's been an interesting few weeks that if that made any sense, it does for me just specifically because I got sober and then in doing that, I started going, you know, I've got to do something better with my life. I've got to get myself back on track. I was, I went to journalism school and then I went to film school and then I worked in LA and then I had a little bit of a mental breakdown and moved to Colorado. And then my life went off the rails and 10 years later, I'm like doing something. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I want to do this show that I've been talking about doing for a long time. But that that's so cool if I'm hearing that right, because I feel like, <clears throat> and this is something I think a lot of people are dealing with in the pandemic. And certainly I can connect to like, and, and sobriety certainly leads you down these paths of, of confronting your own perception of your identity. Mm-hmm. You know, like in my case, perhaps, as like a touring musician, then you're a year in a pandemic, there's no touring. So it's like, who am I without being on tour? We have that with so many things with drugs and alcohol, but also I find with my own anxiety, Mm -hmm. perhaps with some of the depression stuff, it's like, I know that say I wake up feeling funky Mm -hmm. and I, and I'm reaching for my phone. I know that that action in and of itself is inherently going to bring me more anxiety perhaps more loneliness, but there I am doing it. So it's interesting to kind of peel the layers back. Like, so why, why the fuck am I reaching for it? In the same way that I reached for drugs or alcohol, it's like, this is no longer bringing me the feeling that I want. It's no longer that feeling that at first and for a while it does give you. Anyway, it's just interesting to kind of like have a, a microscope which I hate sometimes to be able to see these things so clearly, like self-awareness is great and all, but at times it's very fucking frustrating and overwhelming too. Yeah. To kind of see like, well, okay, if I keep leaning into certain behaviors and then when you don't, it's like a, a new Zelda uh, game or like <laughs> a, a new, you're, uh, you get to play a new level. And then it's a whole other, I used to think just by quitting drugs and alcohol, you beat the game. And you were, you were the man that you always wanted to be or the woman you always wanted to be. Six months ago, I would have said the same thing. 
Yeah. Well, that's what led me to a relapse, I think, is that I thought so when I did when I quit drinking and drugs the first time, like seven and a half years ago. And things opened up in my life that were remarkable and things I didn't even know that I wanted. You know, like maybe I think what you were talking about with shit that you couldn't have even maybe I misunderstood. Sorry if I did. No, there's a it's a it's a two edged sword, but I'll I'll, I'll let you finish. It all usually is. Yeah. Well, no, I just thought it. I just thought at that time there was a creature within me. And if I slayed the creature, now I understand. I don't think you do slay the creature. I think you just don't feed the creature and you learn how to deal with it when it gets hungry. If that makes sense. That's with anxiety, depression, drugs and alcohol on and on and on drugs and alcohol and seeking romantic relationships. And for some people it's career or money or whatever. Right. It helped, it helps you to get, for me, it helped me to get through the brick wall or over the brick wall for a long time, but then it, it didn't. No. And in my relapse, what it did was in every way, metaphorically, but just like, I guess not literally, I wasn't banging my head against the brick wall, but in a lot of ways I fucking was like, I couldn't finish a record that I was working on at the time, which is now put on the shelf for a moment because the strawberry mansion record came out came about. Mm -hmm. I couldn't finish anything. I couldn't connect on a deep level with friends, family, new people that I was meeting. I couldn't connect to my own creativity and continue to try and shove my face full of shit to that's the insidious fucking part of it is that in my mind, you know, when I drank, if I keep drinking, even I would get to the point I couldn't walk anymore. Well, but if I keep drinking, I can walk. You know what I mean? It's fucking nuts. If I keep drinking and taking these pills or snorting the shit or whatever it is, I'll write that song that I can't finish. And then I, and then I have some drinks or I take some drugs and I'm, I still kind of can't finish it. So then I'm just going to take it, take it, take it. I'm going to take this until that person loves me. You know, the shit is dark, man. But at first it's like, have a little smoke, have a little drink. And then I'm writing songs. I feel more comfortable. That anxiety that exists so much in my life daily and then you, I think yours from what I understand and so many people at a young age to just find some kind of medicine that eases that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense why a lot of us go to it, but then you, then for me, I've become a slave to it quickly and it ain't fun anymore. I'm in a darkened corner. I'm stealing your, I'm stealing what you got. If you got booze in the refrigerator, I'm, I'm taking it. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I don't know who took it. And you're like, dude, you're the only one in the house. I'm like, yo man, don't fucking blame me. I don't know. There's ghosts in here. Or maybe you don't even remember. Yeah. I blacked out a lot. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. I don't I don't know where I was going with all this, but but you were talking about double-edged swords. I'm interested in that. Yeah. And so what I was talking about was it's amazing with getting sober. You know, I have been able to go back and relook at my values and relook at what's important to me and music and connecting with people and trying to do something that's positive for the world. And one of those things is, you know, I'm, and this was prior to me getting sober, but you know, I've been trying to conquer the shit that, that drove me there. I think a little bit, you know, I don't want to say that my whole life was based off of a certain incident, but you know, I was, I was molested as a child and I found drugs really early, you know? Yeah. And then, so as a result. That's a big one instant. I mean, that's, that's, that's big. It's, it didn't, but it was something that I held on and I didn't tell a soul for fucking 30 something years until I told my current wife, you know, it wasn't even something I told my mom or dad. It was just like one of those deals, but now I'm, now I'm becoming more comfortable with it. 
And I think that's a good thing that I tell this story. And my wife and I are look, are working on this little like kind of mini doc for me to kind of get it out there. But what I was talking about with the social media and, and that, and like what you were talking about with the album of promoting the thing that you're feeling, this makes you sick. You know, the anxiety tears your, it tears out your heart this morning. I had one of the worst anxiety attacks I had in a long time, but it takes away everything. You can't move. It makes everything so hard. It makes everything feel like it's attacking. I, I put it, it's like when, when, when I have shit in my eyes, everything looks shitty. And when, when I feel that way, it's just full duty in the eye. It's awful. It's a motherfucker. And I only get those sort of panic attacks or anxiety attacks so often. Like we rescheduled this because I, for the first time in this year, I've had ups and downs, but the last two weeks, I'm coming out of it. The last two weeks were, I was just riddled with the shit and I don't know why. And then I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I'm so blah, 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 blah. And it's life and we get through it. But what I was going to say with that, so we're going to put out this little like mini doc or whatever. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to expand the listenership of this show. Sure. And we were talking about it and I was like, I think it's important. And I think that maybe that's something that people can connect to because other people are experiencing this and they're not willing to come out with it. And it's scary, you know, and, and until you do, you can't shine the, you can't shine the light in the dark corner until you're willing to say. absolutely. And so I want to put that out there, but at the same time, it makes me feel sick. And then it makes me like, am I going out onto social media and then turning my life into like a marketing campaign? Yes. I would love to interject very quickly because when, when I was saying before that it could be stressful or I have fears about talking about these things day after day, one, I want to say it truly, and this is no bullshit. I'm so grateful for it purely that I made some music and anybody wants to talk to me. It still is a beautiful thing. And I hope I don't take it for granted. My attitude around it and my own fears that day or my anxieties that day are dependent on where I'm at. Mm -hmm. um, I will say though, none of the people that I've been fortunate to speak to on this particular record, there are times where I find myself repeating some things that I've said in another interview because I like the way that it sounded mm -hmm. much like I suppose when a musician's on tour and you want to have a different set every night. And my band never makes set lists or anything. You learn some moves and you try to keep it real and organic and all of that. Mm -hmm. I truly think, and because I, I feel like the more honest I am, the more I reveal, the, the freer I feel. That's, that's really the case. Yeah. I have fear about it leading into it. Like I do so many things, but when I then do them, I feel more connected. I feel that I've been granted an opportunity this go around with this record and for whatever reason to speak to other people like yourself who are passionate, intelligent, beautiful, kind men and women, a lot of whom also have these struggles or have had these struggles. And so I'm not meeting a lot of conversations that are like somebody doesn't really care, but it's on assignments mm -hmm. or, coming from some sort of academic kind of way, it's been, it's felt very human. Mm. Um, and conversations like 
like this, where I hope can feed each other through our experience and our conversation. Right. And then when people hear that, because there's so many people that struggle with these things as well, mm-hmm. that that's a gift that one never knows the importance of. I mean, I guess through social media, you can hear back from some people that are like, I heard you on this podcast. And it's so amazing to hear you talk about anxiety and depression or relapse on prescription pills or being molested as a kid, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we know, the the taboo nature of it, there still is stigma with mental health stuff that I can't even fathom why, but I know that there is. Yeah. I know that as a 40 year old man who I f- have always felt pretty damn sensitive, very sensitive, mm-hmm. uh, vulnerable in my own way, open in my own way, that it's difficult to have certain conversations or say certain things out loud to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps because of societal conditioning or, or I deem it as weak within myself. Yeah. It's that male toxicity that we were brought up on is how you kind of put yourself out there, but we're, we're just not that type of person. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I thought that I had skated around so much of American societal conditioning because of how I've lived my life. I've always felt like I was living my life outside the law a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't mean illegally, but that too. Yeah. <laughs> that too at times, but, but you know what I mean? I do like kind of a, a rebel in that way, which is fun to think of myself as, and maybe there's some truth to it, but I've, I've learned in the last year or so how much of the conditioning has gotten into in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and trying to strip that back and kind of like see what's really under there. Mm. Um, which some days is really exciting and very empowering. And some days, like in the last couple of weeks, it's just felt very, like you were saying, where everything just feels hard and crappy. Mm -hmm. And I think with the new album with Strawberry Mansion, you know, and you, you said, I don't want it to be a sobriety album. And I think there are those of us out there that are, you know, that have dealt with anxiety and depression and addiction. And for us, it might be a little bit of an anthem or like a score to this, this crazy movie that has been the pandemic or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's just, it's that little thing ringing in the, our background, but then there's a bunch of songs on the album too, that are, are definitely for the masses. I, I think they should be playing a mighty soul on every, <laughs> every radio station across the country. It should be required listening for humans as a whole right now, because it's, it's, you know, it's what we need in the world. Yeah. I just wanted to, and I appreciate it deeply. I just wanted to be honest and then how, how people connect to it. If, if they do connect to it, then that's, um, I guess I just mean if somebody's going to write about something, they're going to write about, they're going to find the theme and there's a bio and all of that kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's like in your film that you're going to work on, with the fear of putting that out on social media or promoting it and then questioning your yourself or your motives, but you know what your motives are mm-hmm. and they're, they're healing and they're pure and they're important. And that's why you do it. Yeah. It's like I make music and I, I was insanely fortunate to have all of these songs come to me during the pandemic. And right after getting sober, I made them with no intention to make a record. Truly. I wasn't expecting to. And I think, when one makes a film or, I mean, a lot of other times I did have an expectation I was going to make a record and hope to promote it and all that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is David Lynch has a, a there's a quote I read of, of him that he talks about this and he says it better than I can. 
but I've always thought about it this way too. And was, I loved reading his very smart way of putting it, but it's like one is putting the feeling, the, the spirits into the language of, in his case, in your case, a film, mm. uh, in my case, into these songs. So at times it can feel narrow or even cheap to discuss it as though I understand how songs come about or to promote it might feel dirty at times. Cause it's mm. like something came through me and I, I worked hard to do it, but then it went through the lens of music. And that is so, I think more infinitely more vast than the English language, which is the only one I know, unfortunately, but mm. probably any language, which is why I can listen to music in Portuguese and dance around my house naked. I don't need to know a damn word that they're saying. And I don't. Yeah. So how do you explain that? I mean, it's just, it's connecting on something that is just a higher, higher thing. I don't know. I don't need to understand it. I'm just glad it exists. Exactly. Yeah. No music. Music is, I mean, outside of, you know, my, my family, my dog, it's the most important thing to me. And thankfully you don't have to pick one over the other. You could have all of those things. You know, I, God, I always hate those. Those like, if you had to pick one person and it was your dog and your daughter and your wife and you only got to take one. Oy vey. Fuck you. Don't ask me that question. I'll throw myself in the fire. Try being 40 and single and interested in dating. And like somebody texts you some like questions like that. You're like, okay, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't want to play this game. Yeah. What's your favorite <laughs> color? Can I love all fucking colors? Sure. I didn't like it even as a kid when they would play that shit. Teachers like, what's your favorite color? All of them? Yeah, the good colors. It's a lot of good colors. Why do I have to pick one? Speaking of the songs on the album, though, that, that do kind of connect with the sobriety aspect, Morning Prayer, for me, is, you know, it has a lot of connection because, you know, when I was getting sober, I had a little bit of issue within a 12-step program how often... You, you know, you're kind of connecting to this God figure. Yes. And so I had to, uh, I had to kind of, you know, find my own higher power. I feel like I'm a real spiritual person, maybe. As we're suggested to do, find our own. Le- less dogmatic. I mean, but I look outside the window or I look at the mountains and I'm like, yeah, there's something a lot bigger than me that's got this th- whole thing going. Yeah, so I relate to that. That song, it kind of follows along with like the third step prayer and seventh. And- that's where it comes from. And like so many other people who who try to find community and, and, and healing in a 12-step program, it was my first time doing it. I didn't do it the first time. I, I never went back to booze somehow. I don't know why, but I, the relapse was with a prescription. That's incredible pills and whatever, and then, and some other things. And then out of desperation, I got connected with a 12 step program and was sent that prayer. Like you, uh, less dogmatic about it was raised Jewish, but kind of Jewish light more in the, mm-hmm. the for the themes of the family and the culture, which I still feel connected to and, and proud mm-hmm. to descend from, but more, Sure. More spiritual based throughout my life, I suppose, and art and music based. So when I was, when it was suggested to me to sort of figure out a conscious contact with a higher power and to pray, I was like, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And still today, I'm sometimes like, maybe I'll do that tomorrow, but I'm trying to do it Mm. and I dig it. It doesn't scare me. You know, I live down in, in Nashville And there's clearly a lot of people here that it scares. And I think it scares 
this is just where I'm doing it. So it's in that uh, context. Yeah. It's in the context of that, but also perhaps the South. I don't know. A lot of people, it seems to me have been whipped with religion mm. with a, with a God that if you're, I don't know, gay, or if you spit on the floor, you're going to burn in hell forever. And maybe that's true. But if it is, I think I'd prefer to go down there. Mm. Uh, seems like the people are, I can connect more with, uh, with those, those center types. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good people if, you know, based off of some of the rules, if that's what's, you know, if just not believing in them is going to, going to put you away, then that's the folks I want to hang out with. Yeah. I, I hope it doesn't work like that. It never seemed to make a whole lot of sense to me that it, that it would, but what do I know for me coming into this last year and some, and, and change that higher power thing isn't so difficult for me up to a certain point. It isn't difficult because I didn't have a negative, scary relationship with religion growing up. I just didn't like Hebrew school, but I didn't like regular school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't like memorizing stuff to recite it. And if I recited it well enough, I'd get a passing grade or people would be like, you're 13 and you recited your Haftorah portion. Now you're a man. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know about all that. But so now in, in doing something like this, where I've always felt energy and what I perceive as spirits around at times. And I've always believed in a higher power. I've never had just like a, I'm going to, for instance, get on my knees in the morning and pray. I've never did it once until this year. And this, this friend of mine who is a mentor to me in this capacity sent me that prayer that you brought up Mm -hmm. and it's by my bed today. And I read it a lot, Mm -hmm. but I felt like I was, as I've learned a lot of people do, they're trying this kind of thing for the first time, or even after a while, I felt like I was phoning it in a little bit. It didn't feel the words weren't always jumping off the page into my heart, into the ether, if that makes sense. And so I took some of that and and developed it into what became that song morning prayer was in hopes to feel it more connect with whatever that is in a truer way. Cause still I will, I'll attempt it by saying like, dear God, do I say dear God? Like this is me and my prayers. Excuse me, God. You know, I get very neurotic about my own prayer. And then I get lost in my own, like, all right, I'll just try this later. Like, uh, Hey God, no, don't say, Hey, dear God, excuse me. You know, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. But when I just sit and play the guitar and sing it, there's that access. Uh, I don't know what it is. So I do the meditation thing every day. I do this like mindfulness meditations. And then when I was getting sober, I had the same thing. And I was like, well, maybe if I just say it every day, I'll connect with it. And one of the things I said every morning was the serenity prayer. And the other was the third step. And I just started saying it every day. I don't do it every day now, but some days I feel it. And some days I don't. Same. But when I do, when I feel it and when my mind isn't racing so much that I could actually, you know, a lot of times if I'm reading an article or, or a book, I, I realize after two pages, I have no idea what I've just read. I've got to reread it three times. I've always been that way. In those prayers, very succinctly and short, they are. I'm like, I connect with all of this. Mm-hmm. This is very much, this is really speaking my language and something that I would, would like to get out of myself, to be, to get out of my own way, to, to be of service to others, to be kind and rid myself of, of some of this, uh, this noise, this internal noise. Yeah. So when you were growing up, was your mom a lawyer then, or was that something that she got to later on in life? My mom did a lot of jobs when my brother and I were little kids up until the time we were about, I was about 15. 
she owned a, a cheese shop, a Jenkintown cheese shop. Okay. She would sell window locks that she would put together at home as like a side job, side hustle. Mm. She, for a time, I think was selling arcade games to restaurants and bars and some other stuff. And then when I was about 15, she went to uh, night school and to law school and became a lawyer, which was incredible and was a lawyer ever since until five or six months ago where she retired. Thank goodness. She was in a type of law that I don't think I don't want to talk about my mama's business, but I think she wouldn't mind. She would agree. <laughs> she wound up in, uh, in divorce law. Yeah. Family law, right? Yes. And my mother very capable of whatever she wants to do and, and highly intelligent and a tough, tough woman also is uh, very sensitive. Some, some people wouldn't maybe know. And she is, she's not to say you have to be one or the other. A lot of people are tough and sensitive, but I think that that job was emotionally difficult for her. I think she would agree with me saying in just what I would imagine is, is kind of dealing with people at some of their worst and really hurt places and, and greedy and jealous and controlling, you know, in like the sober community, it's a lot of people that are trying to get out of that. And where my mom was seeing them, I think it was people in the depths of that and maybe not. And the solution might seem like, well, if I get the house, then blah, blah, blah. If I get the kids, I can only imagine, I mean, I wouldn't last two seconds, but, but I've got so much respect for her that she, um, that was a lifelong dream from when she was a kid to be a lawyer. And then she was a single mother, put herself through law school and, and did it. And you said when you and your brother were growing up, your older brother, how much older is your older brother? He's a year and a half. Is, do you guys stay connected? We do. He lives in, in Argentina and Buenos Aires, but we're in touch a lot. I've been out there to see him and we were always close, but being so close in age, we, uh, we butted heads a lot as kids. Sure. And, um, but always remain close and, and there for each other. And as we've gotten older and as such a profound gift of sobriety, both times that I've attempted it, and I hope this is, hope I hope it sticks. I do get almost somewhat immediately a closer bond with the people that I am closest with, because for me, I'm, I'm hiding a lot literally and figuratively when I'm, when I'm using and, and abusing, mm. when I drop that kind of behavior, I find that there are some people that have always been there for me, will always be there for me, I hope. And they're mm. there to receive me and I'm, I'm able to be a lot more connected with them. So my relationship with him continues to grow, thankfully. Very cool. And did your dad own a bar growing up? My grandparents, my, my grandparents owned a bar, my dad in New Jersey, so I, w I essentially was born in a bar. I was I was in them from a, a, an early age. My my dad would pick my brother and I up almost every Sunday. That was that was the dad day. And uh, my grandparents, who we were very very close with, would pick my brother and I up every other weekend and take us, as we call it in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, down down the shore. They lived in like two mm -hmm. towns over from Atlantic City, and we would go out there, and then you know on the way back stop at the bar. We'd each get like a dollar or five dollar rolls of quarters and get to go play uh, the pinball machine in this bar that when I got older, I was like, I would want to drink in that kind of bar. It was a true dive bar with the, the circle bar 
people smoking. It always smelled just like that old, which I still love that smell to this day. Thankfully, it doesn't make me want to drink or, or do shit. But there is something about that kind of dirty old bar that, yeah, still is appealing to me. Or like I didn't realize how much I missed music venues or 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 being on the road. And then I was passing through New York and I went to see a friend who was, there was a bar that was shut down and she was doing some volunteer work for this organization in the bar. They lent it to them. And I went in and I, I just took a deep breath. And I was like, that's like scent memory, you know, so powerful. Yeah. And I was like, God, I missed this. But anyway, yes, my dad did own a bar and he still, he owns another bar and restaurant now, which I haven't been to. Yeah. I, I just, I hadn't heard you speak about your dad very much. So I didn't know if he was still a part of your life or not. You got a barking dog. Yeah. I'm going to take uh, the phone inside. <laughs> yeah. You probably haven't heard me speak about him all that much, but um, I just spent a, a lot of time growing up and, and in my adult life with my grandparents and my mother mm -hmm. and um, my relationship with my father, though. I, I, I love him. I don't know him as well. And there's always been more of a distance there. And in my life now, I, I'd like to, hmm, you know, you don't know what other, what weight other people are, are holding or carrying. I know that whatever weight that I might be, that I can at times feel, or that I'm quite certain is suppressed within us, mm -hmm. um, that you could feel, but you don't know exactly why you're feeling this way. I'd like to release some of that for the good of myself and, and anybody else that it might do good for. But it's why I just I probably don't talk about my father in interviews or something as much. Just because you haven't gotten there yet. You haven't been able to have that with him. Well, that and also I don't, you know, the stuff when I, when I talk about him is more like, you know, like what kind of music I was listening to growing up and like the memories of driving around in Philadelphia or New Jersey and hearing like the Kinks or David Bowie, you know, he was big in the classic rock. He would also take us to see these like art films and, uh, you know, rated our films when we were way too young, which I appreciate because I don't believe that you're too young at those ages to see those films. I think it expands your, your lens and, and your, your heart and your mind. So stuff like that, um, those are really fond memories, but you know, you grow up and, and you see your dad on, on most Sundays for a certain amount of hours and then you get dropped off. It's like, I don't know what really to recall in the stories of like my childhood and stuff. And I, and I probably stay away from it. Cause I I'm learning now as I get older that I am not trying to complain or anything about it, but I'm sure I hold some pain there and some discomfort. Sure. You talked about your grandparents and you talk about Jack and Sid all the time. Was that a relationship that you had from a very young age or was that something that developed more as you got older? No, from, from the time I popped out, all my grandparents. So when I, in talking about my parents and they got split up when I was two and, you know, it wasn't a, a rage filled, thankfully uh, relationship that they had, but they, they steered clear of each other. It, it wasn't a lovey, lovey thing either. Both my father's parents and my mother's parents surrounded my brother and I, and just were just loved the shit out of us. And at least as kids, like we couldn't really, I couldn't really tell that there was any side that they were on. They just were like, they were on our side. Mm -hmm. And then I was lucky enough to have all of them into my thirties and just was maybe because of my relationship with them, maybe from past life things. I don't know. I always identified with old people. I used mm -hmm. to say to my grandpa Sid, when I was a kid, like, why is my best friend got to be like an 80 something year old man? And he'd be like, that's, that's cute kid. 
we just loved each other. And I, and I felt understood by them and supported just with love, but also like something more ancient, something deep. I mean, I guess nothing's as ancient as love or deeper, but just, I don't have the words for it, but I, I like to say, though I don't have the words for it with my grandpa, Sid, who I was particularly close with, he had a massive stroke. It makes me feel good to tribute these, these guys. Cause I do feel them around me. And I, and I just, I realize how, how special, how lucky I, I was to have this relationship with these old people. I don't know, but I, I guess I just always, I felt old <laughs> as a little guy. I did too. I, everybody called me the old soul and all that when I was growing up. Yeah. 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 I used to love that. I used to get called that too. And I think in ways I'm old and, mm-hmm. and very young, like not even born yet. Kind of young. <laughs> I feel like I went backwards at some point, like at 10, I had it all figured out by 10 and then by 40, I just, I don't know. I'd never had anything figured out, but I could connect with older people and I just enjoyed their company. I felt like I understood I felt more at ease with old people than I ever did with people my own age. I'll put it that way. And yeah, as a kid, I just remember being like, I just want to be older and to play music. Mm -hmm. Those were like my goals. But yeah, Sydney had a massive stroke when I was a kid. I don't remember what age lost his ability to speak almost entirely and the whole thing. And as I say on stage, when I sing that song about him, he did. He finally regained a lot of, you know, a good amount of his ability to speak and move, not completely. But his energy with me and the things that he would say to me, much like the life affirming qualities or energy or whatever that is, the spiritual nature of of art and music, when you hear something and it's something you've thought about or you've seen on a bumper sticker or you've read in a book, but somebody can say it in such a way that it light it 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 lights you up and it, it breaks something open in you. And he had that ability to do that with me as like, he wasn't, uh, they were both very smart guys. They weren't like intellectual guy, you know, they weren't, I don't know if they graduated high school. They were, they were like street smart guys who were, as I always say, when I talk about them, their ability for with my brother and I, cause they could be hard guys too, but like for sweetness, generosity. And I don't mean that just with material things, but also very much that way. There were sort of old school guys where like they would always have to pick up the check, mm-hmm. which I've picked up that. And you have to kind of be careful in this yeah. world we're living now. I've, got, I've gotten in trouble for that. I'm like, no, I'm not like, yeah. anyway, it's a whole other story. I just want to buy you a sandwich. It's okay. I, I had examples of sensitive, sweet, smart in the heart men who were also tough and didn't take any shit. And I think that those are, I struggle with that balance, but like those are when, when it's, when it's strong, like in the way that I think is like a pure sense of being strong, not in uh, punching a guy in the head necessarily, but in like, in having a certain toughness to kind of navigate through a world that isn't always kind, but not to have a closed heart, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And they somehow, at least with us had these incredibly sweet open hearts and we're also kind of just like old, old fashioned tough guys too. Do you think that's why you connected so much with James Cavanaugh? No, I think I connect to my grandparents because that's how I feel. And then the Cavanaugh, because that's how I feel. I feel like I'm, I feel forever optimistic and hopeful and romantic 
and also sad. And like, we live in a world that's full of shit in so many ways and we don't have to, Mm -hmm. and we treat each other in ways that we don't have to. And we value material things over ourselves and each other. We don't have to. And we pride memorization in some sort of academic senses over an expansive spiritual education Mm -hmm. from children, which I don't understand why we don't do that. There's ancient things that are at our, that are accessible (laughs) that we don't teach each other. We don't learn. And I think that's what I find in the Kavanaugh stuff. And maybe my grandfather's or something is like an ancient wisdom and that there are men too gentle to live among wolves. Like I I feel that in my own way, but I'm not, I never was going to, well, I was going to say, I'm never going to run away from the bullies. I probably ran away from some of the bullies, but I fought back too. But I just mean that not, you know, just in, in life, I feel very sensitive to a lot of what I think is artificial and unnecessary. And I, I also play along with it and have been successfully conditioned with it. I mean, I, it's not like I'm living off the land, uh, you know, talking to you from my, my garden or something like that. I mean, I wish. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, usually if you see a guy talking to a show through his garden and there's no cell phone or, or computer device, then he's got some other things going on. Yes. I have a, I've got an iPhone. I'm on it. I have a home. I, I'm a part of the material world. But there are elements of it that I find that I find heartbreaking. And uh, perhaps above all, I find it very tragic that a lot of us are guided to and taught to live our lives for it, for money, for getting ahead, for there's just a lot of trickery out there that I fall for as well. I'm not trying to be a, a preacher. I'm just saying. I think I've always felt that there was more out there. My grandfather's also and my family, they, I think, cause I got, was a little bit of a troublemaker as a kid. Once they saw that I had some talent in a certain way and that it, it brought me some kind of like peace or something, they were just like, I, I never remember them telling me not to do it, mm-hmm. not to be an art, artsy kid, not to, you know, I was like in the musicals with the girls as, as a kid, no other kids might've laughed at me or called me, you know, certain names. Sure but my family never did. They were psyched that I was like Conrad birdie Mm -hmm. Birdie or whatever. I don't know. So it was just, um, I'm all over the place with this, but you've touched on things that, that, uh, that really resonate with me. And so I've just been blabbering. This show is just, it's, it's a series of tangents. Well, man, I'm perfect for it. When I first started, I had this structure and I would have all these questions and I still put them down. And then, now I get through like four questions. <laughs> I think that's great. I think that's great. Well, you have such an open and calm kind of demeanor and, and a, a very natural conversationalist. And I find on my end, that's so much nicer to do this sort of thing, as opposed to if you have your 12 or 20 questions, you can kind of feel when somebody's like, what the next question is going to be. It's, it's nice when things don't feel so scripted, at least for me. I mean, I appreciate that because that's, that's my main goal. You know, I started off and at first I was like, okay, I got all these questions. I got to get through this. I got to get through this part of their life. And then about two or three in, I was like, I don't have to talk about any of that. <laughs> it's whatever comes up. To me, the best interviewers are great conversationalists. They've done their homework, which, which you 
know things that a lot of interviewers, at least that I talk to, wouldn't know that deep about stuff and know what probably what they want to ask, but are able to go off scripts and, and therefore that thing can be more expansive. Actually, one of the things you were talking about led me to a question you had talked about, you know, kind of having this old soul and, and being connected to your grandparents, you know, with your musical tastes and styles. I mean, they're all over the place, probably like mine is, is I was wondering with like Lead Belly and Fats Domino, was that something that you had gotten guided to by your family or were you like a, I know that you had done some Nirvana. So was it Nirvana to Lead Belly or was it something completely different? No. Yeah, a little different. Okay. Um, it was Nirvana to a lot of other great music, but I had already known. So Nirvana was, I learned to play guitar from Polly mm -hmm. was my, you know, Beatles at the time, though. I also loved the Beatles at the time, sure. but Nirvana was my favorite band at the time. Um, I had already known Lead Belly and Daniel Johnston, two of the greats that Kurt would tout. Kurt was so incredible with his openness about his own inspirations, mm -hmm. um, which I really admire and appreciate because that did lead me to the Vaselines, perhaps the raincoats, um, Leonard Cohen, maybe I already knew it, I didn't get way into Leonard until later. And he's become probably my all time favorite. So that's Domino was just, and this is how music, I think when you just really fall in love obsessively with music, this is just probably what any of us do. I knew Blueberry Hill and I'm a walk in. Yes, I am. Yeah. From like the radio in Philadelphia. Sure. Um, Otis Redding, the same, the Beatles, the Kings. So from like old R&B and soul music, James Brown, but the stuff that they would play on the radio, which that's what hit me, Aretha Franklin, on and on and on and on. I got into them to be like with Otis Redding. I started to look for cassettes at the mall that weren't just Otis Redding's greatest hits, which I still love. But I found like Otis live at the Whiskey A Go-Go and hearing Otis Redding live. I mean, holy smokes, man. It just was incredible. And they either, I don't know how they might get, but you could hear the crowd and a guy yelling, these arms are mine, these arms are mine. No, it's just like, okay, baby. And then goes into these arms of mine. And I would listen to that obsessively because it just hit so hard. And then with all the music that I would, and I do it to this day. Um, if I hear something new, not, not necessarily brand new, but that too. If I hear something that breaks me open, I just want to know more, of course. And then if I really get into it, I want to know who does that guy know or that woman know? Who were they into? So I got way into Dylan. Uh, still love Dylan, of course. That's an easy one. You know, who who are some of Dylan's? Okay, there's, uh, there's Woody. Get into Odetta. Once you get into Lead Belly, uh, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker. I want to know all of these guys. And then I wound up having a teacher, this guy, Joe Ferry, who worked for this label, Shawnicky, and they would reissue all of these great old things. So I was getting all these old blues compilations, Cajun music, Irish music. I never understood world music. All music that I'm aware of is made in this world, but it's like anything other than American. Yeah, it's a it's humorous. It's to an extent. It's so, so stupid or racist or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's very I think it's racist and probably uh, nationalist or something. I don't know. Yeah, nationalist is probably the best. I just had like an insatiable appetite and I still do for the music that takes me that is like my access to the divine that power of like I don't know just taking you elsewhere or like 
you know, you're feeling blue, you're crying, you put something on, you're still crying, but the, it's like a different experience with those tears. It feels like you're releasing something like it's, uh, it's so powerful. So anything that could ever make me feel that way or like that I needed to dance around in the house or something, I just want to know m- more about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to hold you too long. I told you an hour. Hold me. Hold me, Marcus. Don't let me go, baby. Prior to moving to Nashville, you were working on the other album in California. I've been in Nashville for almost 10 years, but I had uh, gone out to Los Angeles. You, you had left to go to California to work on the... Lost at last volume two. Volume two, yeah. I went out to Los Angeles, honestly, in hopes of finishing that record with Malachi De Lorenzo, my dear friend and brother and bandmate for the whole career mm-hmm. of our band. I also went because I was hoping to get healthy out there Mm -hmm. and in moving somewhere that the sun was shining, I thought I could get into yoga and meditation and meet a beautiful soft hippie woman and get off these pills. And basically I was looking to find myself somewhere else, which I learned doesn't work. Mm. It's the kind of, when I talk about the academic side of things, it's something that I understand intellectually, philosophically, and have for a long time. But it's still something that I, you know, if I feel uncomfortable here, maybe if I go over there, I'll feel better. And that's sort of what I was, not sort of, that was what I was doing. But I had a big motivator in in finishing this record with Malachi. One of the things I was interested about, volume one is quintessential Langhorn Slim, whatever you want to call it. And then volume two, I'd heard you talk about the fact that it was it's kind of different and wasn't maybe what people would expect in a follow-up to that first volume. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I know that you had the the pills going on at the time. Do you think that also because you were trying to do something out of that zone of volume one had anything to do with finishing it, that it didn't feel as comfortable as a result of being something different? Oh, the pills did. The, the It being something different the pills made it hard to stop yeah. to, to finish it. I couldn't finish anything. And the truth is it might be done. Yeah. Uh, everybody else around me t- told me it was done right. and they might be right. I wasn't done with it. I couldn't let go of it. It was like classic story that we hear uh, over and over about that kind of thing. I didn't set out to make it necessarily something different than volume one. Truth be told, there's only a volume two because there were too many songs for volume one. And those were some of the songs that I really loved. And I wanted to quickly put out a volume two with those songs and record them very simply and have it be a very fast thing. But it turned into the opposite. It's in ways, some of not all the songs, but some of it, like the most production, you know, most instruments and stuff like that and parts and stuff that we've done. I had to take a serious step away from it. I've listened to it on some road trips in the last year. And I'm like, yo, some of this sounds awesome to me. Right. And yeah, it was only volume one, volume two, because there, I just had, because I'm a little bit insane. The way I work too, is like, I had enough songs from volume one that I really wanted to get on a record and be done with those songs already so that I could free, so that I could move forward. I don't know if that makes sense, but like I had it rid in order to, to go forward. Yeah, no, for sure. We had some versions that just didn't fit cohesively on volume one that I just thought I would put those songs together and maybe record a few more songs and we'd have a done record, but I wouldn't allow us or me to do that, of course. So we had to re-record all of those songs and then 
going into that record, I never feel like I have enough. This Strawberry Mansion was the only time I felt like I had enough songs because I wrote 25 to 30 of them in a few months. And I wasn't writing for a record. There was no outside pressure or even pressure that I was putting on myself. With volume two, I was like, which I always do, there's not enough songs. And then maybe if somebody's around and we write them down, they're like, there's 18 songs. Like, that's enough. We got to whittle these down. But I'm always like, well, if these don't come out that great, a few of them, you could have a thousand songs, but it doesn't mean you got a great record. Right. You got to get, you got to have a certain amount of great songs and great recordings that go together in a way that can elevate. Sure. So that's a, that's an anxious thing that I'll do. And then with that and, and with the medication and other things I was up to, I went on a little rampage of just like writing songs really quickly just to have more songs for this thing. And it just, um, I just wouldn't let it be. So it, it didn't get finished, but it feels sort of meant to be that it didn't. And I, and that this record would be the one that I would, I would have for right now. Yeah. This last album, you got back with Paul DeFiglia, who was one of the original members with Malachi. Yeah. How did that group come together, Malachi and you and Paul? I met Malachi early 2000s. I don't remember the year mm-hmm. on the first EP that I did called Electric Love Letter. Yes. And this guy, Chris Bear, who was the boyfriend of a girl I went to college with at that time. And he was just getting into that band Grizzly Bear. And he had heard me at some open mic or at college, you know, doing a show. And he liked it, agreed to produce the EP. When he got me in a room, I think he realized that he was going to need some help <laughs> with me. Um, and he was like, I have this friend, Malachi, who's a really talented guy, great ear and the whole thing and called Malachi in. We made that little record and then decided Malachi was going to produce in his little basement apartment in Brooklyn, the first full length when the sun's gone down and he enlisted Paul DeFiglia. He knew Paul from, uh, I don't remember how they knew each other at the moment, but brought Paul in. And then there was, there was another friend who was going to play drums, but I couldn't play in time. I never played in a band, so I couldn't play in time with a drummer. And Malachi was the only guy that could follow my, me. Right. And to this day, I still need to be followed a little bit in that department. I've gotten, you know, I guess a little bit better at it. But yeah, so Malachi was just going to play drums on a few songs. And now, I don't know, 15, 20 years later, here we are. His aspiration was never to play. Dr- his dad was mm-hmm. the original drummer in the Violent Femmes. And I think, I, I don't want to speak for Mal, maybe in his mind, he wanted to do something different than be the very artistic drummer in an acoustic Rocky band, whatever kind of bands we are. But then Violent Femmes were like one of my favorite bands of all time before I ever met Malachi. So interesting how the the weird synchronicities and stuff that that happened. So yeah, I've known these guys for a long time. And then Cracker Farm, who also does a lot of photos with the Ava brothers, the chicken or the egg there, were you friends with him? And then through him met those guys? Yeah, I was friends with him from before they met, but that all goes back a long time. I know Cracker Farm. There was a place I, I think it was called Lit in the East Village. I went to college mm-hmm. with Regina Spector and we were friends and she had me open the show for her. Uh, Cracker Farm was coming to take photos of Regina saw me play and wanted to do some photos with me and and be buddies. And, um, and off we went. And then Nicole Atkins, who actually lives in Nashville, I just saw last night, actually went to school with, I believe, Seth Avitt brought the Avitt brothers to 
New York City for the first time for this little show at this restaurant that had like a, I don't even think it had a stage, but called me and, um, and Regina and Pale Face. And there was a, a whole group of us that she was like, I want you guys to hear this band. I think everybody would be friends and you guys will all love each other. And I played, I think it was Lord, this old song of mine called Lord and a few other songs and then the Abits. And then everybody became, became friends. I, but Cracker wasn't there. I don't remember how he'd have to tell you how they initially all met. Uh, but, but Mike's been there, like essentially their staff photographer all these years. Yeah. It's funny. I'm just going to bring the whole, uh, seven, um, whatever steps from Kevin Bacon or whatever in this, this conversation. But yeah. I think I told you this, but I found about your music from MySpace, <laughs> and oh yeah, you were like you and Regina Spector were the Avett brothers' top two friends on MySpace. Oh wow! And so I ordered so your album at the time, which was uh, when the sun goes down, and and Regina's I think it was Fidelity, yeah, or something. I think it's something like that. But uh, and I found about both of you guys from MySpace. So great. And talking about social media, bring that back. MySpace was so much better than Facebook and these others. You got that music right on the front. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how, how MySpace took such a nosedive. I, uh, Facebook, man, they, they made it like the adult version of MySpace and they kind of took over the people. Yeah. And eventually there was only a certain number of us left that just didn't held on. Maybe because I was so young and it was so new. I, re I don't remember having an unhealthy relationship with MySpace. I don't even know if it was possible. Not at all. I yeah. mean, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Now I feel like I've got like a very abusive relationship with social media. Yeah. It's just Instagram that I use. I try and cause it, and that one lets you get out to Facebook and Twitter and all the things. And then you can only use just the one, but yeah, it's unhealthy because that's how I find new music now. Like, you know, you're talking about going and you know, you find this musician and then back in the day, you either had to find some kind of paper mag or you had to go in the liner notes and looked at the people they thanked or, you know, there was yeah. some weird ways for us to find out who our musicians were liking and now you look on, you know, social media and find out who they're talking to. And that's how you find new music. And then you can see their cats and what they eat for breakfast. And uh, it's arguably a little too much. It's arguably. as I post pictures about my cat. I don't post I don't eat breakfast. So oh, I eat breakfast every day and I post pictures of my dog probably more than anybody else. Walter's my one of my favorite people in the world. I bet Walter is great. He is. So I have one trite question that I ask at the end of every interview. And it's like, is there something that I've missed? Or is there some words of wisdom that you want to put out into the universe before we say goodbye? Oh, boy. Is there something that we missed or words of wisdom? Well, I don't think we missed anything. And uh, I don't know that I have words of wisdom. What I will say is that kind of maybe ending where we began, which is when talking about anxiety, and the addiction stuff and the depression stuff that what I think has helped me the most is like this conversation with you is a highlight of my day before I do it. And this is not, there's nothing personal to you before I do something that could be like a, a task or something that seems like it's going to be exerting energy. And I don't know how it's going to go. I can get a little bit like, I don't want to do that or it can bring up some feelings. And I know you can relate. And I think a lot of people can it's continuing to try and I don't do this well every day, but in just trying to push my, push my own comfort zone in, I hope healthy ways, but in, in expansive ways, because if I continue to sit in my own 
shit and and try to deal with it in the same behaviors, even if it isn't through a bottle or, or pills or drugs, if it's just like in staying in my own head, mm-hmm. I'm not just like working those new muscles. I'm not learning how to get to the next level of Zelda. And I want to get to the fucking next level of Zelda. And so I just think it's like, you know, some of it might sound cliche or something. I don't know, but connecting with others has been other people that, that get it through their own lives and who are on a, who have a desire or on a journey or a quest to have a lighter step in this world, to be able to find some more graceful dance moves that aren't, I'll speak for myself as selfish, as dangerous and unhealthy. And I just so deeply admire and feel connected with other people out there. Like that's who I, I immediately feel like we're boys, you know what I mean? Because I know a little bit about, Cause you're real about it. Um, and it's like, I did an interview with this guy the other day. We might have nothing in common. He, he told me he's uh, schizophrenic and been working through that all these years, he's an older guy now. And I just immediately, like, as far as I know, I'm not schizophrenic, but I immediately just feel connected because he's struggled with something within himself and has that passion, that desire to figure some things out. I mean, I, not that I can relate to what he's been through, but I don't know. I just feel like an immediate bond with other people who, like I heard somebody say the other day, hope this isn't an offensive thing. I don't know, but they were like, religion is for people that don't want to go to hell. Spirituality is for people who have already been there. And I dig that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like when in talking about spirituality and that just where it's sort of loaded and you might feel a certain one, but you can kind of feel it when, when other people are on this, it isn't to like preach to other people to judge other people. It's the opposite. It's like real deal. Maybe I've lived in problems my whole life. Like how can I find solutions? Like that shit is magical to me. And I don't always have the eyes for it. Like I don't left to my own devices. I can sit around in my own perceived problems a lot. So that's a long winded because that's how I roll in a long winded way. But I, I've found remarkable results in connecting with friends and family, but also people I don't really know that well yet who just get this stuff and not um, not retreating in myself as much as I once did. When I feel intense anxiety, when I feel depressed, if I feel like I maybe I want to reach out, you know, for something outside of myself to make me feel good within myself. So that's it. <laughs> yeah. Connecting with other people is, it's so important. But like I said, you know, I've, this one of my scaredest thing is to ask others for help. Me too. And, and, uh, and particularly when I don't, when I'm in it and I feel like shit and we're not unique in that. When, when I'm in it, the last thing I want to do is call somebody like you, even though that might be the best thing I could ever do and talk about it. But when, when I've been able to do it and it's been really interesting, the gift of these songs and this record regardless of like how many records it sells or what somebody writes about it, it's allowed me to have conversations like this where in the past it could feel like a job that I'm promoting the record and how do I feel about all that and blah, blah, blah. It's allowed me to have really wonderful conversations with people like we were, like I was saying before, who, who are coming at it from their own personal experience. I don't just feel like I'm trying to sell a record. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I feel like I'm being able to just connect with a person that I'm talking to and when that feels honest, I, I do believe the same as in a song, in a film, in a painting, in a meal, that that will connect to an audience. 
Yeah, can definitely connect with that. I hope this show that I'm able to connect with my guests and I hope that that is also able to help other people. You do a great job. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. That's really the truth. Well, I, I really do. And uh, hopefully we can connect again on a personal level when this is all over. We will because you're going to text me later today. I know. Well, I meant in person. I have a good feeling that, that we'll, uh, we'll stay connected. All right. Me too, brother. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, feel free to reach out anytime. You truly. You too. It's a pleasure. I feel like I made a new friend. So thank you. Me too, man. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Bro. Talk to you soon, brother. Bye. Peace. Bro. Yes, you have. No, never. Not once in my life. Okay. So how are you doing, Crystal? I'm real tired today. I did take like a two-hour long nap. Do you know that you say that at the beginning of every episode now? You make me shoot these at like either 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night, which in my opinion is too late to do anything. Or, I mean, that one time is like 11 o'clock in the morning, but you... We're getting me pumped about it way too early. Or I'm just a tired person. There there are no cameras here. I don't know what you mean by that. You said shooting. I didn't know what the word for it was. Recording. All right, fine. I stand by what I said. Okay. Then can we talk about something that I think is really important? You're concerned about how much sleep I'm getting at night? Mm, it's another elephant in the room for those of us with neuroses. Okay, let's do it. So I've been searching for a word how to say as previously stated or aforementioned, but sometimes you'll hear me say six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Right, right. Which for those that don't know is the game where you you pick an actor and then you connect it to Kevin Bacon within six movies or whatever. And then I'm wondering, then can we roll with just going six degrees of separation, which is also like a thing used in the universe where people talk about the human connection of like right, right. based off of modern connection. And it's also a film with Will Smith where he played a con man. You ever see that movie? No, I didn't. It was based off of kind of a true story where this guy came in and said that he was Sidney Poitier's son, I think. Okay, still no. Okay, but I don't know. So then I was trying to say six degrees of separation and then I thought of SDOS. Okay. Which which then if you turned it to, it would be like Estos or Estes and then it sounds like Estes Park. And that, and then also, it also ventures a little bit close to like a cult name, like the oh. Nexus cult or something. Estos. Yeah, doesn't it just a little bit like? So I don't like that. And I, I don't also either. S's sound bad on recording. Like okay. Sometimes I have to cut the S. Don't do that. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody wants that in their and then ear all, holes. And it also starts to give me anxiety about my childhood lisp, which it's doing right now. And for some reason, my audio is doing really weird. Hmm. I don't like that. And I'm sick of acronyms. WTF. That's because you spend too much time on Instagram. TTYL. Uh-huh. Uh, TTYL. No, that's TTFN. I'm like, nobody nobody can take that away because it's what Tigger used to say on the Winnie the Pooh, but that is not correct. It was TTFN. Ta-ta for now. So, sorry. That, never mind. Keep going. S-O-M-F. 
you got me. I think I'm the only one that uses it. Uh, I don't know. Shit on my face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so then I was like, should we call it Quantum Leap? No. Do you remember that show? With yeah, Scott, I do remember Scott that show. Scott Bakula? I don't know who that is, but I, I assume I must have seen him because I had seen that show. Played Dr. Sam Beckett. He would go back in time to like solve what he thought were like mistakes in history and then he would when he would go back in time he would go actually into people's bodies so he would become somebody else in the past now that you're describing it i'm wondering if i didn't actually see it well then you don't remember al then no god so al was his i think they were in the military or something and al was this like womanizing cigar smoking little hologram that would come in and like kind of give him some perspective on what he was saying in the past and he was always sleeping with the lab technician. No. And Ziggy. Ziggy was like the AI. No, none of that. Okay. So calling that phrase or that idea as quantum leap, it doesn't work for you. I don't think it works for me. Well, that was it. That was the important thing that I wanted to get off my chest because I keep thinking. It's because we keep having these moments where I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this that happened at the beginning of this episode. And I want like a word that catches all that and aforementioned just doesn't work. <laughs> Today, we're here to talk about Langhorn Slim, Sean Skolnick. Mr. Sean. No. Okay. All right. Dr. Sean? No, no. Your Honor, Sean. Mr. Slim. I guess. Or just <laughs> Slim? Slim, Slim. Goes by Sean okay. or Slim. Connoisseur of overalls. Yes. Yeah. Was he wearing overalls in the in the interview? Or is yeah. that a stage thing that he does? Uh, no, he was wearing... This was like the day before he put out that new merch... Okay. And with the feelings, feelings. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Had, he had that t-shirt on. Gotcha. I saw that post that on Instagram. The next day he posted it on Instagram. Gotcha. Had to have that lived in look. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So at the beginning I said, Sean putting out the story of being an addict, alcoholic, dealing with anxiety and depression was Kaufman-esque. Mm-hmm. Talking about Andy Kaufman, of course, uh, yeah, who was a comedian, actor, performance artist, wrestler. Andy Kaufman was kind of our parents' generation. Who was the guy? He had sort of that, he had a show on MTV, I feel like. And I think of it as like a bad sense of humor, but it is that kind of... Tom Green. Tom Green, yes. I had a boyfriend once who had a Tom Green-esque sense of humor, and I ended up like breaking up with him because I just couldn't stand being that uncomfortable all of the time. Mm. He definitely had the performance artist kind of thing. He was in our parents' generation, but definitely was in my childhood, like on SNL and things like that. Like I remember uh-huh. Andy Kaufman was definitely like a, he was in my, my six-year-old zeitgeist or whatever. <laughs> I remember him doing the thing with Mighty Mouse where he'd come out and he'd put the little record player on. Uh-huh. And I just thought that was such a funny thing as a kid. I only know about this through the Jim Carrey movie. Oh, uh, this was like... I do not remember this guy from my childhood at all. Family, the Gillis family watching it. And they were actually one cohesive unit for that short period of time. And your parents had you hanging out watching Saturday Night Live at night? Yeah, that was one of the times when we could stay up late. So he did all those performance art stuff with Jerry Lawler. Do you remember that with the wrestler? Where, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, from the Jim Carrey yeah. movie. So he used to do this deal where he would only wrestle women. Mm-hmm. And then he was also Lotka on Taxi. Okay. Oh, yeah, but he did like a little funny voice. Oh, I'm Lotka. No? No. Okay. He mentioned reading the Hoff Torah. 
And he says he wasn't sure about reading that at 13 and then you're a man or something like that. And the Haftorah, which is also called the Haftara, is a series of selections from the books of Nevim of the Hebrew Bible. And it is read at Jewish synagogues following the Torah reading on Sabbath, festivals, and celebration days. And have you ever had friends or employees that have observed Shabbat? I have a client who is Orthodox Jewish Mm -hmm. and I love her because she comes in and educates me on all of the stuff that happens in that religion because I have zero experience with it whatsoever. I don't think I'd ever, not going to say that there's no Jewish people on farms in Iowa, but I'm pretty sure there's just kind of not. Walter, do you have to eat the loudest toys just when we do this? If I put a blanket over him, do you think it'll be quieter? Yeah. So the reason why I bring up Shabbat is it's observed from a few minutes before sunset on Friday evening until the appearance of the three stars on Saturday night. From what I know from most of my friends, they eat dinner, light some candles, say a blessing. Very nice little tradition. And then on the Sabbath, you're supposed to avoid chores like shopping, cleaning, cooking. You're not supposed to go to work. I think they avoid driving. It depends. Now, that's what I was going to get into. Like, so I was going to ask you when you were uh, um, managing like stylists, if you ever had any stylists that couldn't work during the day on Saturday. No. Okay. So employees can't work from Friday night until Saturday night. Okay. But the really strict followers don't operate electrical devices. And that was how I came to know about Shabbat. I was living in this little apartment off Bronson in Hollywood. And there was this very nice Israeli family that lived across the way from me at the apartment. And it was just a man and his wife and their daughter. Mm -hmm. And one day I get a knock on my door in the middle of the day. And the woman didn't speak very much English, which I was kind of surprised about because I had Worked in Thailand and, and the Israelis seemed to be really good at English, mm-hmm. typically the ones I'd met. Okay. Um, but she was not very strong in her English. She turn was just like, stereo. Uh, stereo, can you turn off the stereo? Okay. And I mean, I can hear it from my apartment and she's on the other side of the complex and it's just blasting. And I go in and go into her apartment, her daughter and her stayed outside the apartment. I went in and just pressed the power button and turned it off. I was thinking it was going to be broken. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I turned it off and she's like, okay, thank you. I I can't touch it on on, uh, the Sabbath on Shabbat. And so I was like, a couple of days later, I was... uh, was one of my friends that was Jewish, and he's like, oh, yeah, the people that... Orthodox. Yeah. They, that is the word for just very, very strict. No. No? No, like, Orthodox is... So bad at this stuff. Well, I mean, Orthodox is a strict version, but that is a specific okay. type of okay. Jewish study. Basically, she had accidentally turned it on, uh-huh. wasn't allowed to turn it off. Can't you just get, like a, like, a broomstick or something and just shut it off from the other side of the room? No, because then you'd be touching it. Okay. Walter, can you lay down, buddy? This could be our roughest audio uh, yet. Okay. His mom, for a while, co-owned a Jenkintown cheese shop. Jenkintown is a borough of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and is about 10 miles north of Center City, Philly. Philadelphia. (laughs) Thank you. 
You looked real perplexed when I said Philly. No, I was trying to figure out like the relation to like Philadelphia and New Jersey and, you know, oh, just kind of, whole... I haven't spent a lot of time on the East Coast. Yeah, I've only spent a little bit of time. I remember flying into Newark and thinking to myself that everything around there looks way different than I would have expected. Very like foresty. Yes, that was my same experience. The first time I went up to Pittsburgh, I drove from Athens in the middle of the night. It came after work one day. Yeah. And it's a good long drive. I went through, you know, you go through West Virginia and it's all trees. And then you get into Pennsylvania and it's all trees. And then you get on this highway and there's just dead deer everywhere. There's so many dead deer from getting hit by the, because mm-hmm. they're like overpopulated back then. Are they white-tailed deer? Because we've decided that those are the suicidal deer anyway. Yeah. And then you go through tunnel and it looks like you're in the trees. And then all of a sudden you come out on the three rivers and the city's lit up at night. And it was really cool. Oh, wow. Okay. That's Pittsburgh though, not Philly. Langhorn said he was born in a bar, Mm -hmm. essentially, or Slim or Sean, whatever you want to say. But he was born in Langhorn, Pennsylvania. Okay. This makes sense. And his given name is Sean Skolnick and his Birthday is two days after you on the same year. Yeah. So he's a Leo. Yeah. Okay. That manifested very differently in him than it did in me. Yeah. Um, but so I believe he was actually born in a hospital. <laughs> but you didn't verify that. I didn't. But I also thought that it's possible that he was brought to earth on a flying unicorn Pegasus. It's possible. I mean, we're not going to rule it out, right? Or elaborate stork or a stork dressed like a unicorn. Or a kitten dressed as a stork. He really seems to like cats. A dolphicorn. Dolphicorn. I can't confirm him. Any of that is true. However, I do have unconfirmed reports that he was wearing some kind of a hat at birth. And overalls. He may have been in overalls as well. So <laughs> Those were very popular for little kids when we were growing up. Overalls? Yeah. Like the little Oshkosh Bagash ones? Did I ever tell you about my first fight? No. I was in preschool. and Over Oshkosh Bagash? Oh, yeah. My mom picked me up from preschool. and I told her about the fact that I had gotten in a fight and I had punched the kid. Wow. I was retaliating. I was just sticking up for myself, but they asked me why I had done it. And I said, because he pushed me over in my brand new Oshkosh Bagashes. Oh. Were you one of those little kids that was like, didn't like to get dirty. I had to be in the right phase. I didn't like to stay dirty and I did not like sand unless I was at the beach. Okay. Like I didn't like. So not a lot has changed. You like to be very clean as a young person. But I would go get real muddy. Like I'll go in the mud. Right. But I'm going to like, that's what I'm going to do. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to go get cleaned up. Okay. I think that is something I could relate to Langharm a little bit. Like, like the lived in t-shirt. He goes and gets dirty and he's like, well, this is just how I am now. That's fine. And I can relate to that. You just keep wearing the t-shirt for a few days. Oh. It's just the lived in t-shirt. This is the shirt that it's, I'm wearing. I'm going to wear it for as many days as I can. I do that though. I don't wash stuff a lot. It, jeans especially. Jeans, yes. I don't, I wash my jeans like three times a year. Yeah. They basically just disintegrate and then I go buy a new pair of jeans. Kind of, yeah. So he said that his grandparents lived a couple of towns over, two towns over from Atlantic City, and he said what we called the down the shore. Mm -hmm. 
and I found a list of common New Jersey slangs, one which mimicked that pretty much. It just said that the majority of residents refer to trips they take to the coast to enjoy the beaches down the shore. So did he grow up inland a little bit, or did he kind of grow up on the beach? Langhorn, Pennsylvania is a is a city in Pennsylvania. But is it inland, or is it on the beach? Oh, no, I think that would be inland. This is talking about Jersey Shore near Atlantic City. Was there a pretty long distance between those two places? No, it's all so close. What is East Coast all so close? I was wondering on the East Coast, because my family drove 30 minutes to go get milk and gas. I drive a half a block to go get milk and gas. To me, Aurora is basically a different state. Like, I won't drive there. Okay. A couple of few hours, sometimes an hour. Okay. So his parents likely lived a couple hours apart. Say his dad did live in Jersey and his mom was in Jenkinstown. Oh, yeah. PA with the cheese shop. Drive time is an hour and 15 minutes. Okay. All right. It's across the river. So do you want some additional New Jersey slangs? Sure. Do you want to hear what Benny's are? Benny's. What would you guess a Benny is? Ice cream. It's a showy tourist that travels to the Jersey Shore on summer vacations. Like a gaper in the mountains. Oh, is that what they're called? Uh, You know, it's been a long time since I've been part of the mountain culture. It's been about a decade, but at that time. Because they would like... (sighs) I don't exactly remember what it referred to, but it was just sort of the skiing and jeans crowd. Disco fries. Oh, they are French fries served in Jersey diners that are covered in mozzarella cheese and gravy. Poutine. So similar to poutine, except poutine that we had in Canada has cheese curds instead of mozzarella. Okay. Do you know why they're called disco fries? As opposed to just calling them gravy fries or American poutine or not related to poutine. There's a big fight about that between Canadians and New Jersey people. Oh, okay. Seems like a relevant thing to get all up in arms about. It's more the Canadians being just protecting their culture, protecting their culture, babe, not being hoity toity. All right. So why are they called disco fries? Because back in the seventies, that was a staple of the late going disco night crowd after this night of party and drinking and whatnot. This makes a lot of sense. They do sound like they'd be a good drunk at four o'clock in the morning kind of food. We mentioned, or I mentioned um, the connection with his grandparents. Mm-hmm. My grandparents are my grandparents and Kavanaugh's me. Yeah. But James Kavanaugh, he wrote a collection of poems. There are men too gentle to live amongst wolves. And on Slim's 2015 album, The Spirit Moves, uh, he has a song called Wolves. Probably my favorite Song on the album, I mean, that song was inspired by the poem of the same name from that book. And then also, I think, just that book in general. But James Cavanaugh, in his 1969 introduction, he wrote something that I really connect with. And I want to read one of the paragraphs of his introduction. Okay. He says, Stop. Are you going to do it in a um, Southern attorney's voice? I'm not. Dang it. Okay. Okay. I am one of the searchers. There are, I believe, millions of us. We are not unhappy, but neither are we really content. We continue to explore life, hoping to uncover its ultimate secret. We continue to explore ourselves, hoping to understand. We like to walk along the beach. 
We are drawn by the ocean, taken by its power, its unceasing motion, its mystery and unspeakable beauty. We like forests and mountains, deserts and hidden rivers, and lonely cities as well. Our sadness is as much a part of our lives as is our laughter. To share our sadness with one we love is perhaps as great a joy as we can know, unless it be to share our laughter. I like that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to read There Are Men Too Gentle to Live Among Wolves. Unless you want to read it. Do you want to read it? Oh, man. May I? You may. I never get to do anything cool. There are men too gentle to live among wolves who prey upon them with IBM eyes and sell their hearts and guts for martinis at noon. There are men too gentle for a savage world who dream instead of snow and children and Halloween and wonder if leaves will change their color soon. There are men too gentle to live among wolves who anoint them from burial with greedy claws and murder them for a merchant's profit and gain. There are men too gentle for a corporate world whose dream instead of candied apples and Ferris wheels and pause to hear the distant whistle of a train. There are men too gentle to live among wolves who devour them with eager appetite and search for other men to prey upon and suck their childhood dry. There are men too gentle for an accountant's world who dream instead of Easter eggs and fragrant grass and search for beauty in the mystery of the sky. There are men too gentle to live among wolves who toss them like lost and wounded dove. Such gentle men are lonely in a merchant's world unless they have a gentle one to love. That I do. Great. Thanks. You can sight read without stuttering. It's a kind of a big deal. Okay. Okay. Good. Just yeah. like. Yeah. I thought that was just, it was relevant. Yes. Yeah. I don't have anything to say about that. That's all I have to say about that. His drummer, since he started, who was working with Lost at Last Volume 2 prior to deciding to head back to Nashville, is Malachi De Lorenzo. He has the coolest name. He does. And his father was Victor De Lorenzo, who was the founding drummer for the Violent Films. That was one of Sean's favorite bands. Mm-hmm. That was one of mine. Mm-hmm. And Clay Rose and I talked about Violent mm-hmm. Films a lot in our episode. And I feel like they've come up at two or three others. But may, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like they've come up a lot. It's the pipeline we always talk about. The punk rock. To- a quantum leap. Okay. Anyway, they were kind of a folk, kind of punk. But now we call indie college rock back in the 90s at least where i was growing up but violent films were such a big part of so many people's an inspiration for so many and just very important i like how he talked about how the his drummer just kind of has to learn how to follow him and yeah i i found that really fascinating because you think of people who have music careers understand and have this inherent just ability to make music and it just kind of be perfect. Mm -hmm. I I felt like, I mean, there was a lot of vulnerability in in this uh, interview. As I listened to it, I had to keep stopping for a minute and just kind of like, all right, I'm going to breathe for about four or five minutes just to come back around. But that was one of the sort of hidden moments where he just sort of admitted like these people that I surround myself with not only love and understand me, but have this little net for him. It was a moment where he was very vulnerable and in a very interesting way that I would not have expected. Right. I asked Sean if he learned about Lead Belly from Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, but he said no. And the reason why was when Nirvana did that unplugged set, which got 
you know, released, the recording got released like right after he passed away mm-hmm. on the MTV Unplugged. He's saying, where did you sleep last night? Which was what I was singing at the very beginning to you just a little while ago. I see. That was, but I don't even think Lead Belly sang that originally either. I mean, Lead Belly was around to like the 1940s or something like that. I can't remember. That was one of his that's recorded. Kurt Cobain, he was a big Big leg belly proponent, and he had found out about lead belly from William S. Burroughs, who I talked about quantumly back to Travis Book's episode. Okay. I, I still don't think the quantum leap reference is working for me. Okay. Let's not quantum leap. Okay. Well, yeah. We're going to all let's workshop that one. Six degrees of separation. Like not right now. Just Will Smith it back to. <laughs> so David Lynch. He said that he had some eloquent way of talking about the spirit in the film. And David Lynch is a famous film director okay. known for Blue Velvet. Oh, were you doing that Marcusy thing where you pick the most obscure? I was trying to do the most unobscure. Okay. Blue Velvet, uh, Twin Peaks. He did that TV show. Okay. Twin Eraserhead? Peaks. No, definitely no. Um, Twin Peaks. I think I'm thinking of something different. Where the girl... Like it's Ted and they're like detectives and it's all weird. Oh, no, I was definitely thinking about some comedy where this guy moves up to Alaska and the opening scene, there's like a moose that walks down Main Street. Oh, my God. I was Northern Exposure. Northern Exposure, which is not the same thing as Twin Peaks. It's not, but it was one of my favorite shows back then. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I loved. Oh, my gosh. It was so good. I don't feel like it went on for very long. It was years. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Blue Velvet guy. Yeah. Okay. David Lynch. So he has a bunch of great quotes and I couldn't find that one on the the spirit being in the film, but I liked this one. Do you want me to, I could try, let's try David Lynch. I haven't heard David Lynch speak in such a long time. You need to contrast and conflict in order to tell a story. Stories need to have dark and light, turmoil, all those things, but that does not mean the filmmaker has to suffer in order to show suffering. Take a drag off my cigarette. Stories should have suffering, not the people. I don't know how that's going to sound on the recording end, but from a sitting in front of you end, it sounds like you're trying to do a really bad Sean Connery. <laughs> I was going to say um, Catherine Hepburn. Oh. What was it? What was that movie that she did with uh, Humphrey Bogart, the African queen? Okay. I was going to try and say something about hippopotamuses, but I'm not going to. Yeah. Let that one. No. So it was weird for me when I was young. Cause I was like, Oh, Audrey Hepburn and then Catherine Hepburn. And so I didn't really have the connection between those two being different. And then my dad was like, Oh, we got to watch this movie with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. And in my mind, I thought it was going to be Audrey Hepburn. And I was super excited because even as a young kid, I had a crush on Audrey Hepburn. And then we watched that and I was like, this is not, (laughs) this is not the woman that I was thinking it was. That's interesting. I think I just now realized that there was difference between the two of them. I never really thought of, are they? They're not related. They're not related. Mm -hmm. Were they actresses at the same, in the Mm -hmm. same period of time? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do you have to do not to go to hell? 
you just have to, you know, in the, you don't have time for this in the Christian faith. You just have to accept Jesus as your personal savior. Tell God that you recognize that you're a sinner. So my problem with that is I know a lot of great people that are way better than some of the Christians that have told God that they believe in him and accept him. And it makes me really not enjoy the universe if really all you got to do is say, I believe in you and we're all good. And then the people that are over there doing all the good and being good humanitarians and caring for their neighbors and humanity as a whole, those are the people that are going to hell. That was why I said, I think I'd like to be with those people because I know a lot of really nice people that they haven't accepted Jesus Christ and they're going to go to hell now. I don't like that. I didn't like that at 13. I still don't like it at 41. It's actually one of those. I am somebody who will talk to just about anybody about lots of different things. I'll hit politics. I'll hit your relationship. Uh, Religion is kind of one of those that I just. It's off limits. I I wouldn't say it's off limits, but it's just like, uh, for one, Nobody's got time for that in terms of like working all the long and short of that out. And I I wasn't trying to really get anything out of you. I was just trying to, that is my point. Yeah. The logic is there. I get it. And that was, and I had brought it up when we talked about Travis book, when we were talking about Ram Dass. And then I kind of said, Hey, Mm -hmm. I kind of went off the rails at 13 when all of a sudden I realized I had all these friends that were Buddhist and Hindu and they were good people. And they didn't believe in Jesus, so they're going to go to hell. And I was just like, no, I'm not into that religion anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I think the way I tend to look at it is uh, at the end of the day, some dude wrote the rules. Some dude wrote the book. Sorry. I was just a little Elvis Costello for you. Okay. Every day, every day, every day I write the book. And this is why I don't talk to about hard things. Yeah, because I deflect by uh-huh yeah with comedy yeah, it's john he did it too at the beginning he, he said he deflected with comedy it's it's a, it's a mechanism of self-defense i don't really have any more facts that i necessarily have to bring up but the one thing that i connected with sean mm-hmm. about that i didn't i'm trying to learn to just shut my fucking mouth sometimes and he talked about rereading pages and he said he had to do it all the time. Yeah. Oh my God. If I was able to just read a book straight through, I would have probably read 15 times as many books because I read a lot or, you know, a considerable amount, I think for a grown human. And I have to reread pages all the time because my mind just goes off into either. So I'm reading and I get like three pages in and I'm like, nope, have no idea. I know I read all the words, but I have no idea what happened. So then I go back and I start over and I reread the three pages and then my head starts spinning and I start thinking about either something in the book or what I have to do the rest of the day. And uh, I forget it all. It happens to me all the time. But I've been meditating all the time and it's kind of, you know, it's about focusing and then coming back. And I, and I feel like, I feel like it's been helping me a bit. I would like to meet the person who doesn't have that experience. I've, I don't know that I've ever met someone. How do you know? Cause you're not in their head. 
I guess it's possible that those people are the people that just wouldn't specifically complain about that. Or the speed readers that are real, really fast readers. Okay. That 1% of people. How excited were you to do this episode? I was real excited. You know, I've, like I said, I, I found his album. I know that I was in LA and I was in film school looking for new music. So it would have been in late 2005, early 2006 that I've been listening to his music. And I've bought every one of his albums since he had had his little, he said, uh, electric love letter. Uh-huh. And then when the sun goes down came out, which was the first album I bought every time he's had a new album since very relatable. Yeah. And I've just always like loved the emotion that he puts into the music. Yeah. And when you see him live, like it really, really comes yeah, out. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's, he's such a great performer. I think I used to joke that, uh, that Langhorn Slim was my spirit animal. <laughs> I thought some of the stuff that he was talking about in the very beginning was really interesting about how, this was, I call it an exercise in vulnerability. And I can kind of a little bit relate to it because I've had a couple of exercises in vulnerability in the last year where you put something out into the world that you are very, very, very proud of. And you're just susceptible at that point. And it's kind of like, you feel very proud of it. Uh, you feel very excited about it, but also you're allowing everything that went into it to be critiqued and went over with a fine tooth comb. And it kind of you know, he's talking about how he's doing a lot of interviews where he's talking about mental health and a lot of interviews where he's talking about addiction and that double-edged sword of, you know, it's that self-awareness is a real bitch, but also it's kind of helping to work through some of it, mm-hmm. which I imagine is something that you feel like right here in this room when, you know, like you're putting out there into the world, all of these things that you've kind of been through in the last year, you're proud of the place that you're at, I assume, but also allowing everyone to kind of see in and potentially critique or yeah judge yeah it's it's real it is a weird thing because i went from somebody that you know if you were in my inner circle then i'm not someone that has a big filter i'd say whatever usually was on my mind but in a way i was kind of private about everything at the same time mm-hmm. i would jokingly in that kind of deflecting tone kind of deal where i would just say whatever oh this happened but it kind of, it's all a chuckle to not, you know, really say anything real. Everything was a joke. But no, so I, I would say with putting all this stuff out there, like sometimes it's felt so good and you have that moment. You're just like, I just don't want anybody to be able to hold anything over me. And it's like, if you just put it all out there. Right. And then I had somebody that's, you know, kind of a mentor in this process for me. And they said, you know, you can do that and that's your choice. But, you know, also the world's a tough place and you put it all out there. You can get hit in the back of the head with a two by four eventually. (laughs) And I didn't know how I felt about it. And I was just like, I think I'm just ready to get hit in the back of the head with a two by four. If that's (laughs) what's supposed to happen. I just don't, I don't want to hide. I just don't. I don't want, I don't want anybody to be able to hold anything over me. That's a really interesting outlook on life. If you put everything out there, you're going to get hit in the back of the head with a two by four. And then there's also a really interesting life. If you just tell, tell it all and nobody can hold anything over you, but that's a real, I think that's a positive way to look at it. I'm choosing to be a searcher. Yeah, there you go. Well, that getting hit, somebody coming up and hitting you in the back of the head with a two by four. 
that is a mentality that we were raised with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we hid everything. I I think one of the reasons I laugh at, or I kind of giggle about it, and it does sound something very much like, you know, what me growing up as a kid would have been told, or, Mm -hmm. you know, like my brothers, my dad, that kind of. You hide it all. Yeah. As an adult, you stand here and go, who the fuck are these people walking around with two by fours? Like, what are they so pissed off about? Mm -hmm. And why does my any, why does it matter at all to them? It probably doesn't. It doesn't. On Friday, we're going to release a little interview from Crystal to me, a little mini doc. I take over. Crystal kind of takes over the the helm of interviewing. And I am going to put a little bit, a little bit of my thoughts and feelings about this last year and sobriety and so I really hope if you are on Instagram or Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can find you at Live from Banjo. Live from Banjo. Marcus Gillis on Facebook, working at Live from Banjo. Instagram is Live from Banjo Podcast and Twitter is Live from Banjo Podcast. And now you have a YouTube season one um playlist up on your Marcus Gillis Spotify page. Yes. And if you go to Marcus Gillis, the live from banjo season one Spotify playlist, I've kind of curated like a few songs of any of the recording musicians that were on any of these episodes. So there's been a couple of episodes where we didn't have musicians and there'll be more in the future. But if they do, I'm putting around three or three or four songs. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I curated a little list. And when you listen to this episode, Langhorn Slims will be on there. So if you have it, just open it back up. And magically, there'll be some Slim songs on there. If you don't, go to Marcus Gillis on my Spotify. And check it out. And next week's guest, guest. And next week's guest is awesome. It's kind of like my hero. She is an amazing songwriter, singer, mandolin, bass. I don't know. Talented person. Very talented person. Also. Absolutely strikingly beautiful. Very beautiful and a trained pastry chef. <gasps> no. Really? Yeah. God, why does she have to be good at everything? So that's it for Mr. Langhorn Slim. Really appreciate Sean coming on and being so honest. And just an awesome Very human. vulnerable. Super vulnerable. Very vulnerable. And I love you. Love you too. And I love this dog. Now we both quiet. love this dog. And just remember, kid, we're all in this together. <laughs> <laughs>